Hello and welcome to the Slingshot Group podcast, where our co-hosts bring keen insight to some of the most pressing issues facing nonprofit and church leaders today. Each episode features an in-depth interview with thought leaders, ministry practitioners, executives and artists who draw from their wealth of experiences to share valuable insights and lessons learned from the journey. And now, let's join our hosts for today's episode. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slingshot Group Podcast. I'm Keith Robinson, and I can hardly believe that this is the fifth episode of our fourth season here on the podcast. And I have to tell you, I cannot wait for you to listen in on today's conversation. We're talking about something that's on everyone's mind. What is the future of church? When it comes to seeing around corners, I can hardly think of anyone better than our good friend, Will Mancini. Will is a consultant, an author, and a kingdom leader whose practices are revolutionizing the way churches and missions-minded organizations frame their efforts. David sits down with Will to discuss his new book, Future Church, and what faith leaders must do in the days ahead. So we're going to go ahead now and dive into this interview with David and Will, and then I'll bring back my fellow co-host to unpack some of these ideas. Hey, I'm here with Will Mancini, and uh, you might recognize that name because Will has been on the podcast before. He was helping talk about uh, improv leadership, which is a project that he and I worked on, and really he was instrumental in building tools. I've actually had the chance to work with Will on a few really fun projects, improv leadership and and first 90 days, which you're seeing a lot of in the slingshot world these days. Um, But in in a recent conversation that Will and I were having with some of the other leadership of of Slingshot Group, we started talking about a new project that he has going on and a new book that's about to hit shelves called Future Church, Seven Laws of Real Church Growth. And I immediately texted him after the meeting and just said, Will, uh, we got to have you back on the podcast. People need to know about this book. And so, man, Will, thank you so much for being here with us today uh, and just kind of rejoining this crew. I love it. Yeah. Hey, it's great. Great to be with you, David. It's always fun and, and looking forward to talking shop a little bit. So good, man. I just, let's just dive right in. You are a problem solver. Um, you know, you, you often have something, you know, with your other books, with like Church Unique, with God Dreams, you know, you're, you're moving in toward a problem that you want to solve. You see something that maybe others haven't seen yet. Um, and so I, I like the phrase you use, a problem casting. Um, and then you're kind of giving a, uh, you know, an idea of, of what should we do about this problem that's on the horizon, um, tell us what problem you're trying to solve here with future church. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, I, I want to, I'll tell the problem directly, but I got this story, this one day in the life of just in the field where this grabbed me and I was, David, I was in Atlanta with a pastor who's in his like seventies. He's retiring. It's his last week of like decades of just a, a life well-lived in church leadership and I'm talking to him and I said, Mark, what are your reflections as you finish, you know, right now? He, he said to me, and this was a, imagine a mainline church kind of in the city down there in Atlanta. And he goes, Will, he goes, the church has got to be more than a rotary club with a choir. Wow. And then I just kind of like, you know, kind of 
didn't didn't move the world. I was like, okay, that's an interesting thought, right? And jump jump on a plane. I was speaking in another part of the country that afternoon, and uh, uh, this this was a very uh, different kind of church. It was a Baptist church. The other one was kind of a mainline. This uh, young pastor picks me up at the airport, and we're just we're just uh, chatting on the drive, you know, to the gig. And he, um, he, I said, hey, what you know, what are the challenges you're solving these days, uh, pastor? I had never met him before. And he said, well, and it's just, by the way, it was a six month in this like new kind of honeymoon season, you know, leading a mid-sized church. And he goes, well, I just, the one thing that's keeping me up at night is, as I'm trying to teach my people that, that church has got to be more than a show on Sunday and a wow. few hooks in the water throughout the week. And what struck me, Dave, you see where this is going. It's like, these are like two different areas of the country, totally different kinds of churches. These leaders are two different generations apart from when mm. they were trained to be ministry leaders. And I realized, wow, like as, as you know, this is a couple of years ago. It's like, as we get closer and closer to this, you know, 2020 mark, like every pastor is describing a similar problem using very different words. But that problem is simply this. Every pastor agrees that the church is overprogrammed and underdiscipled. Mm. And the way that I like to say it in the book is we've we, you know, we 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 were in touch with the real mission of Jesus when we were called into ministry, but somehow over time we've drifted into this functional mission. You know, it's wow. going to all the world and make more worship attenders, mm. baptizing them in the name of small groups and teaching them to volunteer a few hours a month. It's wow. like, guys, this isn't the real mission. What are we doing? So yeah. Man, that if there's ever a problem to solve, that that that's a good one. That's a good one. You you, you talk about in the book um, this concept of the upper room and the lower room. You you kind of built a tool around that um, and opened the book with that. Can you give us a little bit of context to what you mean by upper room, lower room? Yeah, yeah, it's a great it's a great little conversation for church leaders to have, and it really got started years ago around the question of, you know, why do people call your church home? Like, what's their primary motivation for attending? And what we do is boil down, really, there's one of two buckets that people can come from. And we use a little house metaphor with a lower room, upper room, you know, single story, second story to say, really, uh, people's emotional connection to your church is one of two places. We describe the lower room as kind of those kind of concrete, visible attributes of the church. It's the place itself. Is it a cool stained glass or is it a, you know, really hip vibe kind of contemporary worship sanctuary? Uh, the personality of the staff, the programs themselves, what's the style of the music? What's the, what's the feel for the kids ministry? You know, what, you know, what's the Tuesday morning women's Bible study look like? Uh, and then the, the, the people. So the four P's of the lower room are place, personality, programs, and people, people meaning uh, just the, the sense of having friends when you go to church. Uh, and so very quickly, you know, church leaders, you know, resonate with the fact, yep, probably most of the people in my church are most connected either to, you know, the building, just throw relocation into the next church business meeting. And you'll find out how much people like the place. They're connected to the pastor. Uh, talk about a pastoral change and see what happens to, you know, people's emotional, you know, connection. Uh, they're connected to programs. Let's talk about changing programs and see what happens. People are connected to people. You know, if you're one or two good friends at the church moves away, does that threaten your connection to that to that local church? 
so we say, you know, most church attenders in North America, you know, are primarily connected somewhere in the lower room. And the upper room is that idea that people actually want to connect to a bigger sense of meaning, hmm. a more profound, you know, kind of connection. And so we just call that upper room. That's a place where purpose or your church's unique calling, your church's vision, you know, just the, the heartbeat of Jesus to make disciples. These are, you know, these bigger ideas are things where people really can connect and get a lot of meaning and love being at the church because of the, those upper room ideas. And so the lower room, upper room is a, is a tool to ask the question, where do people literally connect in your church? And what happens, David, is you can imagine if this little tool becomes a radar, once you see it, every conversation people are having about the church, it's revealing or exposing kind of like, where is that that emotional connection happening right now? Now, yeah. you know, why is this tool so significant? If once you start naming these things very quickly, everybody in the equation, the church leader and the church attender, they both are hungry for that upper room connection. So it just, you know, gives you a good starting point to say what, you know, what is our upper room? What are we all about? Yeah. And, and, and I got to tell you, I don't know that I have heard before, you know, understanding that concept that you're sharing. I don't know that I've heard much about things other than, hey, these are the the reasons someone chooses the church. Are you a good speaker? You know, do you have a good worship culture? Does someone they like attend the church? I mean, all the things that we're talking about, we spend 90% of our effort as church leaders on that lower room right now. And so I, I, I think that there's such a huge opportunity, um, just blue water, to start figuring out what is it what does it really look like to focus on the upper room and then truly that church down the road doesn't have to become your competition you know we always say it's not our competition when when a new church is planted nearby you know oh i'm not threatened by that at all but if we're honest with ourselves right you know it's there's always that little question i wonder how many of our people are going to choose to go there because they like something about them better than they like about us and there really still is this consumer mentality to you know, how do we get someone to choose our church? So I love that. I think that's huge, huge, huge. And I think that's really, really cool. You, you know, if I'm listening to this interview and, and just the the title of the book, um, you know, right away, I'm, I'm demanding, I'm yelling, you know, at my phone or whatever, I'm listening to the podcast, like get to the, the second, you know, title there, um, you know, real church growth. I mean, that's, that, that, that's really, you know, poking the bear a little bit here. Um, so you talk about seven laws of real church growth. What do you mean by real church growth? Yeah, well, it's, you know, obviously if there's real church growth, there's fake church growth. And this is a little bit right. tricky because, Hey, I, I love the church. I'm for the church. I'm for, you know, so it's hard to be in this posture where you're somewhat stating the obvious, but you're also challenging. You're saying, Hey, is your church all about the lower room? Let's, let's, you know, you, you, you were, you know, every listener was called by an upper room moment. So the upper room is in our bloodstream, but it yeah. just, it can, it can drift easily. So uh, real church growth is saying, you know what, the time has come where we have to name um, if you're doing lower room only church, by the way, David, just to be clear, I want every church to have a great lower room. There's nothing sure. wrong with having a room. We just don't want it to be that's the totality of church. We just want an yeah. upper room to be there. So we'd say, uh, fake, fake church growth is the ability to get a lot of people into your building, um, but it's not really creating disciple-making movement. More, there's not more people who are making disciples or making disciples next Sunday. There's just more people, you know, 
coming to uh, a program. So Realtor is saying, okay, what if we were to be so serious about inviting people to the upper room? And and just a quick reflection from the gospels. I mean, Jesus spoke to tens of thousands in his biggest teaching events, but how many people really were a part of Jesus's local church at the end? You know, in Acts 1, we see about 120 people in the upper room. So there's a sense, literal physical upper room there in Acts. So there's a sense in which, uh, you know, there's always going to be more crowds, uh, you know, in comparison to those who really kind of sign with blood and get this big, you know, idea and project that, that Jesus brought. So the seven laws of real church growth are saying, if the more we can put energy around understanding these laws, the more you're doing what Jesus did. He built the mm-hmm. future of Christianity on a relatively small group of people. Uh, he didn't rely on the thousands that came to hear him teach at the feeding of the 5,000. He built everything on a relative, you know, the 12 disciples, the 72 that he sent, the 120 leaders. And so with that, with that said here, you know, laws kind of feel like this, you know, the law of uh, mission is the first law. Real church growth starts with a culture of mission, hmm. not a culture of worship. Um, you know, that's, and so we just kind of build on that and I'll, I'll just maybe walk through them real quick. The second law is the law of uh, power. Real church growth is powered by the gospel, not relevance. We talk about the law of love. This is a real um, challenging one for me. We say uh, real church growth is validated by unity, not numbers. Um, and if I can make a confession, David, on this, as I just share these, these ideas, you know, as a consultant, as a pastor, there's never been a time in my life prior to working on this book where if you, if you gave me an option, like, uh, well, you can either have A or B next Sunday. You can either have A, more worship attenders coming to the worship service, mm-hmm. or B, you could have more unity of the people of God. I would always have chosen A. I would always say, hey, "Unity's nice, but give me more people next Sunday." And and I, wow. you know, that's where this book really did did a work in my soul. Where I'm like, you know, I think I think what God's after is there's something special. And you know, given given the state in the in the in North America, right, the U.S. with with uh, with racial you know injustice and things, you, you begin to really appreciate how powerful the gospel is when when people are really unified uh, mm-hmm. uh, and together. But uh, not to get too sidetracked there, we have the law of context, the law of development, the law of leadership, and then the law of vision or the other laws. And glad to kind of talk more about those or, or at least give the laws there if you'd like. But that's, so the vibe here is, let's not, uh, none of us got into this to be faking disciples. None of us got mm-hmm. into this to do program church, but our big church mentality can take over and begin to eclipse, you know, the upper room and the, and the real thing and the, and the real growth. So we, we're, we're trying to reapproach that kind of old paradigm and, and say, hey, this ought to be new again. And rather than doing program church, let's do organized disciple making at church. Yeah, I love that. You know, I know you started um, you started writing this book before the pandemic, um, you know, knew when you wanted it to come out and all the things. And and now here we find ourselves, you know, when we're recording, we're, we're at, you know, month, the beginning of month nine, of this pandemic really wreaking havoc on our churches, on our leadership. I mean, it's, it's, it has, it has reestablished um, or, or kind of refocused what we're, what we're leaning into right now. Um, how, how does this book connect with 
the the leader in the church in the midst of a pandemic? What would you, how would you kind of answer something like that? Yeah, I'll give just one or two contextual points. You know, um, I had one blog post in 2015 that rose above the rest, and it was uh, it was this one trend of your most committed uh, members are going to attend church less and less, right? And we, mm. we were beginning to see the decreasing frequency of attendance. Uh, Future Church in 2016, I woke up at 2 a.m. on a February, 2 a.m. at night, and and I etched out the book, not really knowing or planning on writing the book. It just started coming out. It was coming out of that idea that there was a decreasing frequency of attendance, that there's a value proposition the church is losing with believers. And uh, it took me a couple of years to do. Actually, interestingly, I sent the book into, uh, I know as uh, an author yourself, you know how big it is to send that email in when you're finally done. I, did, I sent yeah. it in on March 8th, it was one week before we were going to shut down our first work, you know, worship services. So wow. I, at first I was like, man, I have no clue what this means. Um, and then as the pandemic, the implications got, you know, further in, I, um, I, I realized, you know, I, I believe now in God's just in the mystery of God's goodness. I actually mm-hmm. think he was prompting this for, uh, the, the post COVID world. And I think practically speaking, David, what COVID did is it at this point, if you were to stop everything now, nine months in, I think it accelerated 10 years. We're basically mm-hmm. living in 2030 right now wow. when it comes to a, a person's relationship to their local church, just accelerated that kind of sense of, is there value here or not? Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously meeting in a brick and mortar worship service is kind of, you know, low, it's a little bit of a lower room thing. And to some degree, um, if you have an upper room uh, happening, you know, that doesn't dislocate you terribly. You know, the mission mm-hmm. of Jesus didn't stop, you know, when we couldn't, you know, meet uh, for worship. And here, here the, the biggest answer to the question that I, is, is my, my greatest hope and what I'd encourage uh, your listeners to, to ponder. Uh, in August, I, had to, I could write the final page and talk about COVID in the book. And what I realized is that if the internet broke tomorrow, almost everything that we've been talking, you know, 95% of everything we've talked about in terms of pivoting and COVID would be rendered like meaningless because you know, most of our adaptation and necessarily so has been getting, getting online. Well, what happens if all of a sudden, you know, we can't get online or, you know, the church goes underground for different reasons. And when I look at the project called future church and the seven laws of real church growth, none of that would change. Hmm. So I think it's a more enduring playbook for this post COVID reality, certainly celebrate all the quick adaptations um, to, get get our stuff online. We had to do that. And we have to keep rethinking that and doing better mm-hmm. at that. At the same time, you can do everything online and still be operating in a lower room mentality. Yeah. And so uh, the upper room is the true post-COVID play. We've got to get more people connected to the real heartbeat of Jesus and the unique calling of, of, of our churches and, and our communities. No, that's really good. You, you, you talked about as you walked through, you know, quickly the, the seven laws um, you know, tell me for you, what is, you know, you said kind of, this is the one that's hardest for you. What do you think that the hardest one to adhere to for the average church in America today, what are they going to struggle with most as they kind of read through these? Yeah, I think there is kind of a, a two way tie here. I think there's one, and I'll just mention both of them. One's, one's more direct, one's more, more subtle, more, more 
it's subtle. It's a little more subversive, I would say. The, hmm. the, the, the fifth law I didn't mention is the, the law of development, which is everyone will kind of get this. I mean, real church growth is about growing people, not managing programs. And we, we kind of hmm. know that. And I would say that's the hardest one, even though it's clear and obvious. The, at the end of the day, um, you know, how I would say, Dave, David, the, the, the church is a community of practice as much as it is a community of belief. But essentially, we're, our churches are like uh, swim, you know, swim education without a swimming pool. Like we, hmm. you know, we sit you in a classroom and we expect you to learn to be a swimmer, but we never get in the swimming pool. So this sense in which how many things do we do? We, we have worship services, we have small groups, we have volunteer environments, but do people actually practice living in the way of Jesus? Are there a set of expectations hmm. of how to live that get embedded or codified into the, you know, the lifestyle of discipleship? And, and, you know, the average um, church leader or staff member is usually too busy, you know, with Sundays coming to actually seriously, you know, develop, you know, invest into people. And we, we know it's, again, constant wrestling on that. We're just saying sure. spend more percentage of your time really being, and, and, and that's kind of an obvious one, but I think that's the hardest one to make that yeah. time shift. It takes the, the most time probably. The one that's hard because we don't see it would be the. That takes the most time. That's the heavy lifting of ministry that uh, mm-hmm. our big organizations, you know, our success begins working against us because of the size and scope of our programming. The, the subtle one that I'd like to mention just really briefly is the, the law six. It's the law of leadership where we say um, real church growth is led by calling, not celebrity. Hmm. And no, you know, no, most pastors, as you know, they're not on an ego trip and they're not doing it for themselves. However, there's a subtlety of uh, talent, and if you got a great preaching talent, if you get a great worship talent, right, Dave, all the great talent that Slingshot's helping connect, you know, places, you know, ba- basically, uh, you can't um, you can't share celebrity. You can't just mm. share talent. If you share your celebrity, you know, you have less, and you you've given it to somebody else. But the 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 kingdom doesn't move from celebrity to celebrity. It moves on the authority of Jesus and power of the gospel. So Jesus gives his authority away and he doesn't lose authority when he gives it away. And so our pastor, you know, lead, church leaders on listening in have this authority given by Jesus and the opportunity to multiply that authority, to give that authority away, to help people really mm-hmm. believe that the kingdom is expanding that uh, you know, nine to five, where they live, work, and play every day. That they're authorized agents of Jesus, and that the whole purpose of our church programs is to equip and empower people to actually do the mission of Jesus twenty-four-seven. And that I think there's a, a celebrity dynamic that it's a little uncomfortable to talk about. Again, we're not trying to you know uh, criticize anyone's motives. We're just saying it's just mm-hmm. in the structure of how we're doing church. We tend to we tend to stand on our platforms rather than helping other people see uh, their hobby, their neighborhood, and their workplace as the kingdom platforms that have been God-given to them. And our mm-hmm. church exists to make them the heroes, uh, if you will, for the mission in, the, in those places. So that, I think that's the one that's kind of siphoning the real impact yeah. um, in, in, our, in our church today. Yeah. What, what I like about what we're talking about and what I've been able to see in the book really is you're just, you're giving almost um, just new things to aim at, you know what I mean? It's, you know, we've been aiming at, and we, you know, our definition of success has been how many people can we get in this building 
that would call our church their home. And that is like, woo, we made it. You know, that is successful. If we hit this certain metric or this certain number, what, what you're doing is you're kind of flipping that on its head and saying, hey, I, I don't know that I hear you saying um, you shouldn't get people calling this church their home, but you're saying, what if what if it's more than that? What if it's it, it gets into the heart and the soul of who that person is? What if it's more than just attending, but it's it's discipleship? And that to me, you know, we talk about discipleship. That's that's It's not a new concept. And yet... It is not a concept we spent a lot of time in today's church really leaning into the way that it sounds like we need to. And so as 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 we wrap some of our time, I, I'm I'm curious, Will, um, you know, you have you know 15 plus hour, uh, 15 plus thousand, you know, hours of um, consulting and coaching churches and helping, you know, different types of churches of size and denomination. You know, what what is that that thing that you would say if leaders just understood this if they would read this book and walk away with this one thing it would it would it would change the way we do church what do you think that is yeah i think i well yeah and i think it's so fun to use our imagination in this post covid world mm-hmm. i think it's i would say it's Jesus gave us a pattern to follow. My seminary only gave me two ways of looking at the the text. Like it's either prescriptive or it's descriptive, which is like Mm -hmm. either do it exactly like it says, or, oh, it's just kind of descriptive of something that happened in history. And you 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 can't really parse it out that easily for today. And um, I I wholeheartedly believe in what I'll call the definitive pattern, Mm -hmm. which is it's something it's more useful than it's descriptive, but it's not exactly prescriptive. It's this sense in which Jesus actually shows us how to spend time in ministry Hmm. and it's investing in the few. He spends a disproportionate time in the upper room with a handful of people. And he literally builds the worldwide movement where he literally accelerates redemptive history, history. He literally effectually gets us in the kingdom in the game. If we're listening here today and we have a relationship with Jesus, it is because he was not building a platform. He was building a life-on-life pipeline through through giving his best energies into a few. And that's a very accessible opportunity for every church and every church leader, mm-hmm. you know, listening. Um, it is the future of your church is more accessible. It's it's more successful than you realize when you upgrade your aim. And we're not just looking at um, it from the programmatic perspective. One, the, the final thing I say is everything we do is right and good. What we're saying is move the finish line. The finish line is not mm-hmm. it would get people coming into the church, um, but did we get the mission of Jesus growing in the hearts and minds of our people where they become you know, just it's a, they're, they're in the daily team sport of what Jesus ushered in and it's accessible and it's meaningful and it's fun and it's energetic. And, um, and it's just, it's available and free to everyone who, uh, who engages. It's a little, it needs a little, we need a little perspective help mm-hmm. to see it, but that's what I'd say. Investing in a few is uh, it worked for Jesus and uh, it's how we'll have make our biggest impact as well. I love that. That's huge, man. Well, every time I get a chance to get some time with you, I, I leave feeling smarter. 
um, which I personally appreciate. And I leave um, with uh, a challenge that I want to walk out with. And so I thank you for for coming back on the podcast for talking to us about your book. If if you've been listening to this and you're you're interested in in knowing more about this book, you can go to futurechurchbook.com. Well, when when does the book officially release? When can people get it? You can order. You can pre-order a copy today, but it ships December first from the shelves of Amazon. So there that's the official release date. Perfect gift for your staff, maybe even if you're if you're one of those that 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 do that. Um, also, Will showed me earlier uh, before we we jumped on here. Uh, you showed me a visual summary of the book, and it's beautiful, and it really walks through each of these concepts and and gives kind of a a visual perspective. And and right now that is set up for people to receive that when they pre-order the book, but you've been uh, kind and generous. And so for the Slingshot Group podcast audience, um, Will is going to make that available to you at no cost. And so we'll have a link um, in the show notes that you can go to um, and download uh, the the visual summary of future church book um, and don't don't sleep on this one. Make sure that you lean in and 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 kind of accept the challenge, not to just throw out everything that has been, but to move that finish line to a brand new place. Will I, I appreciate uh, you being on the podcast, my friend? So good, so good. Hey, always great to be with you, David. Thanks. <laughs> Wow, such a compelling conversation with our good friend, Will Mancini. Welcome, everyone. I'm Keith Robinson and joined by my co-host today, David Miller. Yo, hello. And Brian Taylor as well. Hello, everybody. Well, guys, as we just dive in to this conversation, this was great stuff. And David, I kind of want to start with you because as you, you know, dove into Will's new book, talking about the future of the church as a foundation. It felt like the thing that he was saying to us is that churches have become so overly programmed Mm -hmm. and that Christians are under discipled. Yeah. And so what is our response? And the church of the future is going to speak directly to this issue. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all, just, just, you know, I, I said this on the recording with him, like, just, you can't talk to him, not feel smarter afterward. You know what I mean? Like, you're just kind of yeah. like, okay, all right, man. You're, his, his engineer background, you know, screams out when, when he, when he's able to just really break down things. And he really is a, yeah. you know, what, what we said there, a problem caster. And so, um, you know, he's, he's seeing, um, obviously, you know, and we've even talked about it on the podcast, you know, a few times this idea that that program has taken over and, and we're burning out our people. Um, and we've talked about it from the, the idea of the staff that's feeling that burn, but he's coming from it, from the idea of like, Hey, the average attender really mm-hmm. needs more than what we're giving them. And the future of the church will be, um, you know, will will be decided by the churches who are really able to disciple, who are really putting that together. And so he talks about that, you know, that 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 kind of master tool and idea of the upper room and the lower room. And you know, I remember in a conversation I was having with him before the interview, um, you know, this idea of the lower room. We we spend ninety percent of our time really putting our effort into the lower room. You know, like as, as church leaders, we spend so much time there. Um, 
you know, there's, you know, I, I've always said, and Keith, you've heard me say this, I, I, there, there are five reasons. There's so much research behind it. Five reasons that someone chooses to attend your church. It's the location. It's if you're a great speaker, if you have great worship culture, you're building, and do you have something for my kids? Like yeah. notice that discipleship and mission and, and the spirit. And I mean, even, even theology is not one of the top five reasons someone chooses your church. Mm. Like, isn't that crazy wow. when you really right. break that down? And so for us as, as church leaders to understand the difference between the upper room and the lower room, to, to understand that, that the lower room is going to hit those five things. And, and those are not bad on the, on their own right? Like they just aren't the point, but they've become the point. And that if we as leaders leaned into the upper room, that bigger sense of mission, that unique um, culture and an and idea of your church that is really leaning toward the discipleship of your people, if we do that, things would change. Like things would change. And yeah. I think that's a really beautiful, um, almost just him giving language for us as leaders to hold on to. So I can see people reading this book and being in a meeting afterward and saying, great. Uh, I love all the ideas we just came up with. Now let's move to the upper room. Hmm. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that, that becoming common language for us to kind of, now let's lean into the upper room and figure out what that really looks I, like. I think that this season has been a case study in that. Like it's caused churches to confront things that prior to this point, I don't think, I mean, you could pay attention to it in the strat yeah. meeting, you know, you could, you know, talk about it. But you know, one of the things that, that I've seen is the churches that were really lower room focused when everybody was competing for the same attention on mm -hmm. a Facebook stream or a YouTube, like those churches, their, their people kind of just went their own separate way. But the churches that have focused on mission and gotten people to focus on their contribution to that mission, to this yes. bigger than me mentality, um, they're thriving and, yes. and doing well and not complaining about the hoops that they might have to jump through in their region or the things that have been restrictive uh, to them because their people understand the mission. It's actually motivating them to be more involved and more engaged and giving is going up and, you know, people are being reached at greater levels than other. And it's, it's simply because of that. They chose the better thing before they quote unquote needed it. Right. Like they chose yeah. that as their, their way forward. And I think this season has highlighted, um, that gap in a way that I've, I've not seen up until this season. Well, yeah. if, if there's, if the only reason someone is attending your church and a part of your church calling it home is because you have a great worship culture, man, you're really struggling right now. Yeah. You know, if the only reason someone is chosen your, you know, has chosen your church is because, you know, you have an awesome building Man, COVID has really put a damper on that winning yeah. streak you've had. And, 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 you know, I, he, he touches on it in the interview, but, but we've talked a little bit more about it at, at different times, you know, um, you know, really saying like, Hey, if the internet shut off tomorrow, all these churches would be like done for, <laughs> you know, like, you know, and, and again, it's not even a negative, like we had to get everything up online, right. Uh, the, the, the pivot we made of getting everything up online and ready and, and trying to our best to recreate that experience. I'm not even mad at it, right. but the fact that we've stopped there is the problem. And, and so he said in a meeting that I was in with him, you know, if, if the church really was upper room focused before this, 
they're not necessarily struggling. You know, Brian, you just touched on that. They're not struggling in the same way. And there's something about moving the church back to, um, to a discipleship culture. Yeah. Again, I I don't know that I that that I think we need to lose, you know, necessarily the bells and whistles, but we have to call them what they are. They're the bells and whistles. Yeah. And 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 moving the rest of it back to its its kind of proper place of how am I helping the people in our community to be better um, followers of Jesus? How am I helping them to be more like Him and not just wear our t-shirt? How am I helping them to be more, um, you know, disciples that are helping make disciples rather than attenders that are inviting more attenders. Yeah. And I, and I think that's going to really, you know, hit in a, in a huge, huge way moving forward in this season. It's so true. And for the leaders in, in the ministries that, you know, you answered a call to ministry. If you're on staff somewhere and you're, you're running a ministry or you're leading uh, an area of ministry within the church, you answered that call to ministry, but suddenly you probably found yourself acting as a glorified event planner for Christians who have nothing better to do. Mm-hmm. And it can start to feel like, wait, there's such a disconnect between what I see when I read the ministry of Jesus. And I love that Will pointed us back to that. Because Jesus shows us how to spend time, how we are to spend our time in ministry, and that's investing in people. Mm-hmm. And Will said investing in the few. And, and he said that Jesus spent a disproportionate amount of time with a handful of people who were seeking the upper room. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if you do the math and, and kind of like New Testament, uh, the events of what happened after the resurrection the number is somewhere around 500 people that witnessed or saw Jesus after the resurrection. And so they heard his proclamation to go wait in Jerusalem to tarry, he said, right? That's the old language that's used in the King James, but it's wait in the upper room until you receive the spirit's power to go and do what I've called you to do. And and so if you do the math on that, 500 people saw that, heard that proclamation, and only 120 went to the upper room um, when you get to the book of Acts. And so I think one of the things that's been hard for leaders is we've made this false equivalence that the more people I can get into the program, into the room, the more effective I am. Hmm. But in fact, the upper room is for the few. And, and so how would that shift then what we do and what we emphasize as leaders if we really focused on what Will is calling law number five, which is this development culture that transcends online digital strategy. And, and it's, it's much bigger than that. And the churches that we go to and that we staff in, the one thing that the churches are looking for is someone who can develop people. Send me someone. They don't have to be the best, the rock star at everything, mm-hmm. but can they invest in people and multiply themselves and others? And when you find that person who understands it, it's because that's been done for them somewhere along the way. Yeah. And we can all probably point to one or two or three people who at different points in the journey came alongside of us, alongside us and taught us something new, discipled us in a new way and made that investment deposit into our lives. And yet for ministry leaders, again, we find ourselves running more programs and thinking that that's going to equate to effectiveness. Well, you, you, so how, do we, that- how do we change that narrative? 
Well, yeah, I, you've heard that like, you know, you get what you celebrate. You know, we, we talk about it in, even in, you know, our improv leadership stuff, we talk about precision praising, you know, precision praising helps someone understand the culture, it enculturates them. Well, if what you're praising is a crowd, you're going to get people chasing crowds. We have to learn how to praise um, discipleship. I, I, I think that's going to be a huge, a huge piece of that. We have to learn how to praise that in, an, in a different way. But right now, you know, the person that gets to speak in, at the conference, the the person that gets that next job, the per, it's it, it really is. Um, well, how big was the ministry you came from? It's mm-hmm. it's one of the biggest like markers and measurements that we have. And again, I, I don't think we throw that measurement out entirely. It should be one of the things that we look at. But but I I, I, I got to tell you, I've I have not been in an interview where you know four churches. I've worked in three different churches. You know, over fifteen, you know, eighteen years now. I have not had anyone ask me. Talk to me about how you're discipling. Give me an understanding of what your discipleship looks like when you're walking with an individual or a small group of people, every interview has been about talent. Every interview has been about, um, you know, what they would call impact, but impact of how many people showed up. It has never been about the small, about the, the that lower number that moves in it. And so I think if we're going to change that culture, if that really is the future of the church, we have to figure out how to measure it and how to celebrate it well. Yeah. If I'm going back to, you know, what you were saying, Keith, about the 120. And I think he references, I think it's the law of love. He talks about unity, not numbers, you know, part mm-hmm. of that as well. Um, but look at the impact that that small unified group, like the early church acts to all, all together and all things in common, the ripple effect of that small group and, you know, if we were measuring it in, we talked to 500 and 120 show up, we might actually say that that was a failure. Yeah, we would kill like, that program. Totally. We'd be like, oh, that program is terrible. Yeah. But again, it's it, the kingdom mindset, you know, is is different than the way that we naturally are wired to measure things. And I think if we pay attention to that small group, the unity factor that he references, the ripple effect of that is going to be extraordinary, especially if it's being replicated by the leaders in, on teams and organizations. Everybody, you know, not just everybody's in one small group, but each, each mm-hmm. leader has their few. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then those few have their few. You, you continue to see this exponential increase in the impact and, and uh, mission of the church ministry. That is well said, Brian. And yet, there's so much more to unpack here. Uh, if you haven't done so already, do yourself and your team a favor right now and pre-order Will's new book, Future Church, Seven Laws of Real Church Growth. The book releases on December 1, but again, you can go ahead and pre-order today at willmancini.com or Amazon or wherever you buy your books. We want to say thank you for joining us today for this conversation, but don't go anywhere just yet. We've got an improv leadership moment coming up that you don't want to miss. Well, hey, everyone, and welcome to that part of the episode that we're calling Improv Leadership Moments. Leadership is not just a series of tasks that we're responsible for doing. It's an art that involves imagination, that requires innovation, 
and demands an emotional engagement that at times calls for improvisation. Only the best leaders can truly improv. At Slingshot Group, our co-founder and chief culture officer, Stan Endicott, and vice president of coaching, David Miller, developed the Improv Leadership Coaching Model to help leaders build trust, encourage risk-taking, increase collaboration, and promote creativity. Improv leadership is based on five leadership competencies that leaders can develop to initiate powerful conversations and create memorable, life-changing moments for their teams. So, without further delay, let's jump into today's Improv Leadership Moment. All right, let's look at our next competency, uh, the fourth competency, lobbing forward. This one, on the surface, probably... um, this in itself, this is a metaphor. <laughs> Correct. Lobbing right. forward, this name is is a, is a metaphor. Um, so <clears throat> unpack this for us, guys. Lobbing forward, what in the world does this mean? Yeah. yeah. I, I don't want to date this too much, but you know, there's there's a recent um, commercial series that that was out for Breeze put these commercials out and you, you know, you, you've seen them. It was, it was, it's the, it's the dad in the man cave. And then, you know, his wife walks in and it smells like a burger. It's the, it's the teenager in their room and it smells like a, you know, like a dirty sock, you know? And, and, and what's, what's so brilliant about these commercials is it says, um, you know, this teenager's in his room. He thinks it smells fine, but when his friend walks in, they smell a dirty sock. He's gone nose blind. And, and, and that concept of going nose blind um, translates in, in this really powerful way. Like, like he's become used to the smell and no longer is able to smell it. Hmm. Here's what's happening with so many people on your ministry staff is that they are in the day-to-day grind of their job and they're doing the functions to accomplish the things that they're supposed to do. And in the midst of that, they're going nose blind to what could be, yeah. to the dream of what could be happening in their ministry through them. <clears throat> and, 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 and as leaders, it is our job to inspire our teams as they get stuck in the day-to-day grind of their job to lift their heads, right? When you, when you lob something, you're, you know, someone has to literally lift their head, their eyes up in order to catch the thing that's being lobbed at them. You cannot have your head down typing out an email. You have to look up. And so what we were trying to capture here is is that concept. How do we as leaders inspire our teams to move them forward? Yeah. And once again, we've said it at every competency, this is something that uh, that Stan has done incredibly well with, with each of us. Um, and so, so we really wanted to... to <clears throat> We, we like debated. I don't know if you remember this, Stan. We debated on this one. We were like, is this one a, is this a big enough concept? Because couldn't this be like lumped in there with precision praising? Couldn't, couldn't this concept, like, you know, asking, a, you know, or, or even um, asking a right question through story mining, couldn't we like find a way to put lobbing for it in there? And, and once again, you, you know, you, you had this moment with us that you just said, people are desperate to be inspired and it's our job to do it. And so, Stan, for you, like, why was lobbying forward so important to have as a standalone competency amongst improv leadership? Have you guys ever been on the top of the Empire State Empire State Building? Yes, I have not. You haven't? No. 
I haven't. We should go. Let's do it. At the top of the Empire State Building, there are these, uh, for like a quarter, you put in these uh, telescopes. Binoculars. Yeah, the binoculars. Yeah, the binocular thing, you know, Mm -hmm. and you put a quarter in it, and you can see all the way to Bakersfield from the Empire State Building. (laughs) (laughs) And, right. And so there is an actual uh, term attached to like words like what if hmm. i wonder all of those words that i'll bet those are called modal m o d a l modal verbs which nobody cares about but i i found that out and i like telling people that i know about it so for example i don't know if, if you were with me in no it was tim with me in nashville and we went to this barbecue place it was awesome and the the everybody said, hey, the owner, that's him over there in that booth. And he had like six other people over there, and they were partying and stuff. And our food was awesome, and the, the service was great. And so I get I got ready to walk out, and I went over to their table, and I said, excuse me, uh, are you the owner? And everybody thinks something bad just happened. And I said to him, I said, I just was here with five people. And I got, I got the, I got the bill. And I just want to tell you, I don't think you charge enough because <laughs> this place, the food was terrific and the service was off the chart. Good job. And he jumped up and said, can I have my picture taken with you? <laughs> <laughs> That's the kind of thing that causes people to absolutely to redirect their thought of what might be and what I might be able to do. Well, thank you for joining us for today's episode of the Slingshot Group podcast. We hope that you've been encouraged by the content and found these conversations meaningful. The best way to stay informed about the Slingshot Group podcast is by subscribing on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'd love your feedback. Also, be sure to visit us at slingshotgroup.org to find out more about how we build remarkable teams through staffing and coaching. That's all the time we have for today. Until next time. Thank you.